Welcome to Book Bistro, where book enthusiasts come to chat about the books they love in a warm and supportive environment. episode is airing on Tuesday, November 16th, 2021. Hello everyone, it's Shannon and I am back here with you to share an author interview and of course to talk about this week's new books. So the interview you'll be hearing today is with author Lexi Elliott and we talk about her latest work, How to Kill Your Best Friend, which is a book you may remember hearing Brooke talk about Um, around the time of its release in August. So we talk about the novel, we talk about her writing, um, we have a pretty awesome discussion about just the thriller genre in general. Um, So I hope that you enjoy this interview as much as I enjoyed conducting it. And following that, of course, we will talk about this week's new releases. So Let's get started with the housekeeping information, and then you'll hear from Lexi Elliott. You can find us on Twitter and on Facebook by searching Book Bistro Podcast. You can always post just on the Book Bistro timeline. Some of you have done that. I'm always so happy to see when you've published posts there. You can join our Facebook listener group where you can chat with us as well as with other podcast listeners. You can keep an eye on some of what we're reading. We usually update you each Wednesday with a look at our current reads. If you'd like to get a hold of us and social media is not really your thing, you can email us. That address is thebookbistropodcast at gmail.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of the Book Bistro Podcast. This is Shannon, and today I am really excited to be talking with Lexi Elliott, who is the author of some really amazing thrillers. And today we are talking about her latest, which is How to Kill Your Best Friend. It releases here in the U.S. on August 17th, and at the time of recording, it is not yet out. Lexi, thank you so much for joining us today. And thank you so much for having me. You are very welcome. So before I have you give um, listeners a bit of an introduction, I just wanted to tell you that we have... um, a thing that we do here every month where we look ahead to the books coming out the next month. And one of my presenters actually talked about this book um, briefly when we recorded on Friday. So. Oh, thank you. That's wonderful to hear. You're welcome. So can you give our listeners a bit of an introduction so they know a little bit about what to expect from How to Kill Your Best Friend? Sure. So um, How to Kill Your Best Friend is uh, my third novel. Um, As you said, it's coming out uh, in August 17th. It's a psychological thriller and it's told through the eyes of um, two friends, Georgie and Bronwyn, who together with uh, another friend, Lissa, were... um, uh, They were... They dominated their college swim team uh, some years ago. But now Lissa, who was the strongest swimmer of all of them, has somehow drowned off the coast of the 
island resort that she owned with her husband. Um, and Bronwyn and Georgie come together with some other friends at the resort for Lissa's memorial service and uh, find themselves questioning how this star swimmer could have drowned and, uh, and who they can trust. And the weather turns difficult trapping them on the island and the story begins to unfold. <laughs> I don't think I would want to be trapped on an island, um, especially not for someone's funeral. That <laughs> does not seem like a great uh, set of circumstances. Yeah, and actually that's how I, that's partly how I came to the story. I, I was on holiday, um, obviously it was pre-COVID. And yes. I was on a nice island, you know, back when we could travel, when, when mm -hmm. anyone can remember that far back. <laughs> Um, and I and I was thinking that whilst it was absolutely lovely, lovely place to be, it would be quite terrifying to be there in inclement circumstances. And particularly if, for example, the staff weren't on hand because you would feel very vulnerable. And often if you go to that sort of location, you're picked up in a car from the airport, you don't actually really know how you would get yourself out of there if you just had yourself to rely on. That, that's probably not my favorite thing to contemplate, I'm guessing. <laughs> it, it's a little anxiety-inducing. Yes. <laughs> so can you talk a little bit about the title? Unless, of course, that would sort of spoil um, some you know, major plot point that we don't want spoiled for listeners. But I've been really intrigued by the title of this book, um, you know, from the time that I first saw it um, several months ago. Yeah, so the title actually came to me first and I, I'd finished my previous uh, novel, which was The Missing Years, and was looking around for what would be the, the next project for me and thinking of different ideas. And this title occurred to me and I just thought, Wow, that's interesting. Why would you? Why would you even contemplate killing your best friend? What What could be the story behind that? And then I started kind of putting together um, the the ideas of you know that that were obviously being. Um, I, I guess I was being influenced heavily by where I was on holiday at that point, and came up with the storyline. Um, I mean, I, I think there's a limit to. Um, to what I can say about uh, that aspect of the story, except yes. that you know you have three very close friends, you have um, very strong, very intense female friendships there that have been in place for a long time. They've known each other since college, um, so I, I think the readers they they will come to understand that you know there there's a, a dynamic in there and particularly when when one person is taken out of a friendship group as as has happened in the past for these people that does affect the dynamic of the the remaining members there is just a so much to look at when we talk about female friendships both you know in, in fiction and of course in real life but I think there's something particularly special in both a good and sometimes a toxic way about the ways in which women relate to one another. And it just, it makes for some really, really stunning 
not only thrillers, but even like, you know, what's termed women's fiction, um, even in romance, you know, you see a lot of like strong female friendships. And I just love the ways in which we can look at the way people relate and form a story around it. Yeah, I think it is one of those, um, uh, one of those issues, storylines that, that writers tend to return to again and again, because it is so interesting. And I also think that how you think about it and how you come to that aspect of friendship changes over time. I think that you perhaps might be more combative or competitive, maybe is a better word, um, in your teenage years. And as you grow older, you are maybe more supportive and thoughtful um, in your in your female friendships. The, the interesting aspect here, I suppose, is that there's always been an element of competition, um, both between the the friends because they were competing on the in, in the swimming pool arena, but also they were on the same team, so they were competing against others, and so then you've got this building of of a sense of being on the uh, in in it together, working together. But then also they're all individuals and you have all the same petty jealousies and, and uh, resentments that can come in, particularly when people are, you know, just forming who they want to be in life, as I think most of us do in those late teens, early 20s kind of uh, time of our life. Um, so all of that put into the mix. But, you know, I think if you if you write about people who have known each other for a long time, you know, who are now at the stage of, for example, Georgie, um, sorry, Bronwyn has, um, has children, is married with children, you know, they've, they've grown and they've changed and the friendship has to have changed too. And how does that affect everybody else? It, it's something that I find really interesting. I think, you know, we see it in our own just daily lives and the people that we relate to, but often, when a book sort of acts as a lens, you can kind of look at it, you know, from a bit of a distance and say, hmm, you know, I wonder, um, hopefully, you know, no one's friendships um, result in, in death. But <laughs> I wonder if you, you know, kind of look at it and just say, like, hmm, I wonder if any of my, you know, close relationships, like mirror some of these things that I see in fiction. I think that's one of the really nice things that fiction does. It allows us to look at elements of our lives, you know, through kind of that, that lens of, of entertainment, but you can still pull quite a bit of insight from it. Yeah, I think you can. And, and sometimes, sometimes you're right with that. And sometimes I think uh, we all might be guilty of um, uh, framing a narrative that suits us maybe. Oh, yes. <laughs> I think you have to continually uh, try and uh, look at, at the evidence as it comes in over time and not not rely on whatever uh, whatever narrative you've you've created because people change and things change and um, I, yeah I think I think I think friendship is something that never stops evolving and it's important to protect it and cherish it and, and not take it for granted. So you mentioned a few minutes ago that it was kind of the title of this book that appeared first for you. Is that kind of a, a standard way that you write where like some element 
of the novel will appear in your mind and then you kind of frame the rest around it? Or have you found your process for creating to be different with each book that you've done? Um, it's not usually the title because this is the only title I've <laughs> ever come up with that's stuck. Um, <laughs> uh, normally the, uh, the publishing house has a different opinion from me on what should be the title of the novel. Ah. Um, and I'm not precious about that. I don't mind at all. I just, uh, I usually have a working title in mind with a, with a sense that it will change. But at least with How to Kill Your Best Friend, I thought, yeah, they'll have to be going some to, to beat that as a title. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> But uh, yeah, in terms of um, the process, often I have a very strong sense of the, if not the opening paragraph, sort of the opening scene, shall we say, um, and a similarly strong sense of the ending scene and not a great sense at all of how I get from one to the other. And that's quite exciting. I think if I knew every single step of the road, it would be a boring process and a boring process for the writer is surely a boring read for the reader. So I, I think it think is. So. Yeah, I think it's good to have a, um, it, to, to, to have that uncertainty going on for me too. So then once you actually are working through the story, do you tend to kind of plot it out, you know, once you sort of understand who your characters are and what their situation is, or do you sort of allow it to unfold as you write it? So I do plot out now, um, not in great detail, but probably, you know, four or five A4 sheets um, typed of, of the outline of the, of the book. And there's um, two reasons for that. Um, one is that it actually does make it easier to have that kind of framework when it comes to to the writing with the understanding that things can shift and change and, and usually do and that's fine um, but just some kind of working framework before you start is is a good idea um, the the other reason for doing that is actually that my my publishing house usually demands it of me so <laughs> so uh. it's something that I have to get across to them so something that they can kind of have to know like what you're what you're working on and perhaps how to how to best market it when it comes close to to publication yes exactly um and you know it's it's a it's a partnership i'm trying to write um books that excite me that um cover issues that i find interesting and fascinating and want to delve into but equally you know, my publishing house wants the same thing, but also wants to um, feel that they're going to be commercial. And so before I really get properly stuck into any project, we have a discussion and there might be a few different ideas um, flying around. You know, I might say, well, what about this one? Or what about this one? Or what about this one? And they would say, ah, we prefer the first one. Go with, maybe go with that. And then I'll work it up a bit more and, and see if that gets the green light. So what happens if you are, you know, really interested in writing something and the publisher's not sure that that will sell? Is it something that you just like then automatically have to put aside? Or do you have any leeway to sort of, um, explore it and see if there's anything that you can do that might 
sort of improve its uh, commercial appeal. Yeah, I mean, if it's if it's marginal, then clearly there's a discussion to be had. Um, if it's really not something that they're particularly interested in, then you know, my my first obligation is I have a contract with them, so I, I'm I'm obligated to provide something that that's suitable for them. So yes. clearly, you want to be working on that project, and that is your major project. But if if you feel really strongly, and, I, and actually I am quite interested in writing in, um, you know, some, some different genres. And if you feel strongly about that, then you can always do that in whatever spare time you have. And, you know, if I really, really, really want to work in a different genre, then at some point I just need to pitch up with a finished book in a different genre and say, hey, do you want it? And uh, if they don't, then my agent would would look at other other publishing houses, I'm sure. But, you know, my my primary um genre is clearly the psychological thriller and it's something I'm, I'm very comfortable in and I I really like the framework that you have I I, I always call it scaffolding really that the, the scaffolding of uh, a thriller that allows you to kind of hang everything else around this this firm foundation that that holds the story together what other genres might you uh, be tempted to write in someday? So I, I am tempted by young adults and uh, I'm yes. also tempted by um, sort of uh, adult sci-fi slash fantasy. Oh, okay. There are <laughs> tons of like just phenomenal fantasy novels. And I'm always really excited to see what people come up with in terms of like world building and just like understanding the the boundaries of of the worlds that people create so I'm always really excited especially when people have written in you know a genre that's very real world based like like a thriller or sometimes you know like historical fiction I love to kind of see how they move it around into sort of that fantasy world and and make something that is sort of uniquely like fantastical, but often with other elements thrown in. Yeah, I think the that that particular genre, the fantasy genre, is an interesting one because, um, as you say, the 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 world building is so much a part of that. And in fact, you you need to learn to do that a little, right? You need to have a lot of early exposition on how that world works and what's important in a way that's not clunky, that's not difficult. You know, I don't have to, in my psychological thrillers, explain to everybody that it's, you know, a, a contemporary world with iPhones and so on. And, and you don't, you don't need to kind of step through some explanation in any way. Um, and so it's, it is a different challenge to do that kind of novel. Yes, I would think so. Speaking of challenges, are there particular challenges that you find in in writing a thriller? Um, I suppose you just have to be very thoughtful about um, the red herrings, I suppose, is the, the best expression for them. And you have to 
get the detail right because people will will call you out on it if you if you get anything wrong um having said that those you know uh Berkeley have a wonderful copy edit team who would always you know check anything and and come back to me if if I'd gotten something uh, a little awry um but I I think for me I'm very focused on uh character arc uh, I would never want a character to do something that just doesn't make sense for the sake of, you know, putting in a twist or a, some kind of red herring. It, it needs to feel natural. And I don't want my reader to ever be sitting there going, well, no one in their right mind would ever do that. You know, you know, when you watch a, um, or, or when you're, you're uh, watching some kind of movie that has, for example, a horror element and, somebody hears a noise from the basement and it's there's a storm outside and they know there's a serial killer on the loose and they think that they'll just go down and investigate the noise by themselves and I'm thinking nobody in their right mind is going to do that um so I never want my readers to have that sense of oh nobody would do that uh so it's important to me to make sure that every choice they make is is a sensible reasonable one and if it's irrational that it's irrational for a reason that makes sense for their character and their character development. I remember reading probably, gosh, I don't know, 15 or 20 years ago, um, a pretty popular sort of like police procedural. And I'm thinking like, wow, you're supposed to be like a professional, you know, investigator. And yet you're doing all these like really insane things. Like, how does this work? And so it really resonates with me that you say, you know, you want your characters to do things that, if they don't make logical sense, you know, to the reader, at least like make logical sense for the arc of that character. It's very important to me. I just think I can't, if, if I don't believe it, um, then, I, and actually it's really hard. I don't, because your, your characters, or at least my characters in my head start to, um, they start to run their own lives, right? And they start to do things themselves. And it's very hard to make a character do something that just doesn't make sense for who they are. Um, so I kind of stand by that. If it's, it's, if it's starting to get hard to write or feel awkward, then maybe I need to just go and look at what's going on now and whether that feels like the right thing for that particular um, part of the story and the characters who are involved in that scene. So you are, at the time of recording this, which is um, at the end of July of 2021, yep. you are getting pretty close to publication. And I'm curious to know how the pandemic has sort of affected um, this book for you versus like others that you've written. Um, how it's affected it? Well, the bulk of the book really the the first draft um was done pre-pandemic so i was doing um second draft and then you know subsequent uh editing work uh through the pandemic and that was um quite different for me in terms of uh the way in which i had to work versus the way in which i would have preferred to work so Ordinarily, I would write away from the house so that I don't ah. have to look at 
laundry or get distracted by anything. Um, ordinarily, I wouldn't have had two children under my feet who were homeschooling. Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah. So, yeah, I had uh, I had the same kind of pandemic challenges that uh, that a lot of people will be able to relate to of trying to manage that. Plus, um, uh, at that point, although I've recently resigned, but I had a three day a week um, job working for a fund manager in the city of London. So obviously that moved to being at home, too. And like many people, I was finding that my my work was bleeding outside of normal work time because we all had that work uh, blurring of the the kind of are you are you living at work or are you you working at home I mean it, it all became yes. very very blurred and so I had to I had to find a way to work in amongst that environment which for me meant really just grabbing anytime I could and if if, if I would prefer to work as I do, in fact, pre- prefer to work between, say, 9 a.m. and 1 p.m., get a really big block in, but that didn't suit at all with the family and with what was going on, then, you know, and if the kids were going to be spending time chilling out at the end of their um, school day between sort of 4.30 or 7, uh, then maybe that's the time I suddenly have to work. And uh, and I, I had to adjust in that way. And now I think I'm much more flexible about being able to um, pick up the laptop and get into things. I mean, even, even this week, there's been Olympics on in the background, Lions playing at the weekend and, uh, you know, all sorts of sporting things on the telly nearby and I've been working away. (laughs) So what is next for you now that it's almost time for this book to be out in the world? So I'm working on book number four, um, which uh, I think first draft is due towards the end of the year. Um, So I I generally get pretty neurotic about it from about 20,000 words onwards. So I'm I'm feeling pretty neurotic about it right now. Um, Ah, yes. (laughs) Does that sound familiar? (laughs) I think, you know, it's it's a thing that people uh, get into it at different points. Like some people say, you know, at the beginning, like they're really tense and concerned because they're not really sure, you know, how everything's going to go, if this is the story that they're actually going to be able to write. And then other people, you know, the further they get in sort of the more, um, the more difficult they, they find themselves, you know, feeling. Yeah. I, I think, I think it gets easier for me towards the end and I liken it to like if I drove from here to I'm in London right now to give you some context if I drove from from London to Edinburgh there's there's lots of different ways you can go and that kind of makes you anxious but if as as you get closer and closer to Edinburgh there's maybe only one or two roads so (laughs) it gets easier as you're approaching the the final destination I think you were talking about driving from London to Edinburgh and so of course like the thing that flashes into my mind is all the people that used to, or at least in romance novels, used to elope from London um, and head to Scotland. (laughs) And then they would have like family members, you know, chasing them and like trying to figure out which way they, they might've gone. Yes. They all used to get just across the border. I forget the name of the place and, uh, and, uh, and get married there. (laughs) Yes. Yes. And there would always be like somebody, you know, trying to, anticipate like where they might stop and like could they sort of catch them before 
they actually uh, managed to to get there. Yeah, you, you'd, you'd have to go some to catch someone now, I guess, because I could get up to Edinburgh in about, you know, probably six and a half hours now. <laughs> well, there would be less chance then for, you know, someone to, uh, to intercept you. Yeah. <laughs> so it is now time for me to ask you my most favorite question to ask authors. And that is, what have you read recently that you want the world to know about? I read um, Piranesi by Susanna Clark, which is on the Women's Prize for Fiction shortlist. Um, yes, it is. Yeah, they've delayed the ceremony um, to September, I think it's going to be. Um, so we haven't yet heard who's the winner, but oh my goodness, I just really loved it. And I didn't read her first one, um, this is her second novel, and I must look it out um, if, we, if we get a summer holiday. I think that would be my summer holiday read, but I just really, really loved it. Thought it was just incredibly special um, and unusual and different and kind and generous and, and all sorts of, I, I'm not sure I can come up with, with enough um, descriptive words for, for my passion for that. So I have really enjoyed that. And then the other thing that I am reading, but it's taking me so, so long, and I'm not sure if it's because I kind of don't want to leave the character, but I'm, I'm reading Mirror in the Light by uh, Hilary Mantel. And clearly we, we all know what happens to Thomas Cromwell. So Indeed. <laughs> it's quite hard when you've been there for the journey. And I know when I get to the end that, that, that will be the, the end of him. So it's, um, I wonder if that's what's making me take so long about it, or maybe it's the fact that it's over 900 pages. I mean, it's- Well, there is, I think, something to be said for, um, you know, the, the length of that book. And if you look at like, not only that book, but sort of the, the trilogy as a whole, it is, it is an epic um, series of, of books. And just such a tour de force. I mean, unbelievable in the way in which she's done that. I, I should think a database was required just to keep hold of all the characters. I sort of wonder about that with a lot of historical fiction because you know, when people write, especially about like, you know, the, the tutors, for example, you have so many people with so many different relationships to various people. And yeah. I just think it must get terribly confusing, um, especially when, you know, many of them have like the same or similar names. I was like just, about to say, yeah, yeah. there's literally all the same pool of names and, and you're supposed to distinguish them by, you know, whose daughter or husband or whatever they are. It's very confusing. Yes, I, I have a lot of respect for people who delve into history in that way and actually can recreate it into something that feels, you know, like compelling and engaging in a way that you know you want a novel to be and I also wonder about that process for for when they start they must uh they must have to work really hard against stifling themselves by stopping every few sentences and going oh have I got that right I must just check. oh yes you know and and that in itself could just mean that what what might ordinarily take I don't know eight months to write suddenly takes a year and a half to write because you you're just slowing yourself down on the details check all the time 
I imagine if you are someone like, um, like Alison Ware, for example, who has written so much like nonfiction around her fiction, um, you know, I'm guessing if, if you have sort of that much like inside knowledge of what you're writing, maybe you don't feel that like compulsion to check every, every few mm. sentences. Um, yeah. Cause you you're know, she, wrong. she has done just a ton of, you know, heavier, like research-based writing um, about this period in history. So then she can take it and probably fictionalize it pretty easily. Although, you know, I, I suppose there's no way to really, to really know. <laughs> yes, if, if she's a completely inured in that, in that period and knows it backwards. And I'm sure if you write repeatedly in the same period, then it, it gets a lot easier. But oh, what a mountain to climb to begin with. <laughs> Indeed. And especially for, you know, someone like me who is like born and raised here in the U.S., like I only have, you know, so much knowledge of British history in a way that, you know, certainly someone who has lived there, you know, spent time there and really has been steeped in it, you know, would, would know in a different sort of more, more detail oriented way, I would think. Yeah, you say that. Um, and I, I, I think everybody perhaps feels the same um, about they know their own area and, and not the broader context because certainly the history that I did at school, um, I was uh, brought up in, in Scotland, was uh, Scottish history. So I know very little about the English history, but I could tell you all about the Jacobite Rebellion. You know, oh, yeah. <laughs> so I think we all have those little bits of uh, insecurity about our knowledge. But having said that, I've just remembered the name of that uh, Scottish town. It's Gretna Green that they always yes. have to get, get married. <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> it's like a big thing in uh in historical romance especially those that yeah. are set like in London or you know other parts of of the UK where you know you can't just like marry whoever you want to marry <laughs> yeah I'm glad I remembered that that would have annoyed me <laughs> oh, I hate that when you're just like you know that you know something and it's just like out of your out of your head at the time that you need it well, I want to thank you so much for taking time out of your pre-release schedule to chat with me today. And before I let you dash off to whatever exciting things you have next, can you let listeners know the best place to find you online? So um, my website is uh, alexielliot.com. So that's L-E-X-I-E-E-L-L-I-O-T.com. And you can find there um, details of where you can pre-order How to Kill Your Best Friend, which um, comes out August 17th. All right. Well, thank you so much. And good luck to you when this actually comes out. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed it. Thank you for having me. You are very welcome. Okay, so let's talk about new books. So I kind of feel like a broken record. There are so many supply chain issues and so many books that were supposed to be published on one date now being published on another. So I do apologize so much if you're looking for books that you've heard about on the podcast and you're unable to find them because they haven't been released when we thought they were going to be. 
I do my best to keep abreast of the publication dates, but they change so often, so fast, and it's just very hard to keep them all straight. So the first thing I'm going to mention today is actually a book that was supposed to be published in October, but was pushed out until November. Um, And this is All the Feels, spoiler alert, book two by Olivia Dade. Sarah talked about this um, on our most anticipated releases of October episode, but it was pushed and is now being released today. Then I'm going to talk about one of my most anticipated November picks. This is The Singles Table by Sarah Desai. It's the third book in her Marriage Game series. I love the first two so much, and I'm so excited for this third one. And Kristen talked about the latest J.R. Ward book. This is The Wolf Black Dagger Brotherhood Prison Camp, book two. And this is one that so many of the Beastresses are looking forward to. Um, Stacy usually talks about J.R. Ward, but Kristen had it this time. So if you are a Ward fan, you are probably also looking forward to The Wolf. Okay, so let's talk about books that we haven't talked about before. I'm starting out with some historical fiction here. We have The Cartographer's Secret by Tia Cooper. This is a dual timeline novel um, that explores map making and family secrets. Um, This is an author that I've heard really good things about in the past, and I do want to pick this one up um, as soon as it becomes available. This is The Cartographer's Secret by Tia Cooper. We then have A Net for Small Fishes by Lucy Jago, and this takes place at the Jacobean Court in Scotland. There's romance and intrigue and all sorts of political maneuvering that I really find intriguing when we look at court-based historical fiction. So this is another one that I will be picking up. It is A Net for Small Fishes by Lucy Jago. Then we have a couple of historical romances. The Nobleman's Guide to Scandal and Shipwrecks. This is The Montague Siblings, book three by Mackenzie Lee. Um, You may remember several years ago, um, a book came out, The Gentleman's Guide to Vice and Virtue, and it kind of took the romance world by storm. So this is a continuation of that series. And this is a series that I have not read yet, although I do intend to pick it up. Um, But I'll probably start with the first book rather than the third. But this week, we have the third one. And it is The Nobleman's Guide to Scandal and Shipwrecks, Montague Siblings, book three by Mackenzie Lee. And then, just because I seem to like titles like this, we have An Heiress's Guide to Deception and Desire. This is Lady's Guide, book two by Amanda Collins. And I have read a few of Collins' previous books, and I really, really like them. She does such a phenomenal job of incorporating strong female friendships and all sorts of fantastic witty banter. I also love that her heroines are pretty unconventional in a way that feels 
like fresh and authentic for the time at the same time. Um, you know, you often find in historical romance that it's sort of like modern people just kind of dressed up in historical costumes. And Collins doesn't do that. She allows her characters to be quirky, but they still fit the time that they were written in. So this is An Heiress's Guide to Deception and Desire, Lady's Guide, Book Two by Amanda Collins. I also want to mention a... Um, romantic suspense novella. This is Rare Danger by Beverly Jenkins. And I don't always talk about novellas here. Um, I am not a reader of novellas. But I kind of think you have to make an exception for Beverly Jenkins because Beverly Jenkins is phenomenal. And I have never read her romantic suspense. So this one is about a librarian who finds herself in a very dangerous situation. She, of course, you know, is also searching for love and apparently finding it. So love and danger blend so nicely in romantic suspense. And I'm really eager to see um, what Jenkins' spin looks like for this particular romance subgenre. So this is Rare Danger, and it is by Beverly Jenkins. I want to move along now to a mystery. This is The Pledge. It's Detective Betty, book three, by Kathleen Kent. And this is a follow-up to The Dime. It is a police procedural mystery um, with some kind of family secrets woven into the story. Um, the series started several years ago um, with the first Detective Betty book, and I heard a lot of really positive things about the writing and the character. Um, I did read that first book. I have not continued with the series, although that has very little to do with the series and more to do with just the amount of things that I have to read. Um, but I do plan to continue, and I'm very excited to see how Kent is going to wind things up in this book. So this is The Pledge, Detective Betty, number three, by Kathleen Kent. Okay, so let's move on to some young adult here. We have When We Were Them by Laura Taylor Nami. Um, Stacy talked about one of this author's books a couple of years ago. She mentioned um, A Cuban Girl's Guide to Tea and Tomorrow. Um, so this one is young adult contemporary fiction about a high school student who's kind of looking back at the destruction of a friendship. Um, she was part of a really close-knit friendship group and something went wrong. And so we get to sort of see what that might have been. Um, so this is... When We Were Them by Laura Taylor Nami. We then have The Diamond Keeper by Jeannie Mobley. This is one that I am super excited for. I actually was able to become the first person to put it on hold at my public library. So it will be zooming into my library account anytime now. 
Um, this is young adult kind of historical fiction with a little bit of a mystery. It is um, a story relating to the Hope Diamond. And I know very little about the Hope Diamond in, in reality. There are a ton of stories out there relating to it. Um, but I'm really interested to see how Mobley chooses to tell the story. So this again is The Diamond Keeper and it's by Jeannie Mobley. We then move on to some young adult fantasy. Um, we have A Rush of Wings by Laura E. Weymouth. And this is a witchy book. There are so many great witchy books out over the past couple of years. Um, I just, I never get tired of them. So this one is about an untrained witch who has to tap into her powers if she wants to save her brothers and their home. Um, kind of gave me like Daughter of the Forest by Juliette Marillier vibes, although that's just in my head because I haven't read this yet, but I do plan to pick this up. It is A Rush of Wings by Laura E. Weymouth. We then have something that goes very nicely with the retellings episode that we did last week. This is Briar Girls by Rebecca Kim Wells. This is a reimagining of Sleeping Beauty with a queer twist. Our heroine is looking for the Sleeping Beauty in an enchanted forest. Rebecca Kim Wells, I believe, wrote um, a Pride and Prejudice reimagining last year. And I think it was like Pride and Prejudice with Dragons. So that is very cool. And I definitely plan to do some research into her backlist to find out if this is indeed um, what I'm thinking of. But this one is Briar Girls. And it's by Rebecca Kim Wells. We then have Our Violent Ends. This is the second book in the Violent Ends series by Chloe Gong. This is YA fantasy with Asian mythology woven through. Lots of magic, lots of world building. Um, the first book, Our Violent Delights, came out last year. And I think Kira talked about it on one of our episodes. Um, and it is one that a lot of people have loved, both people who generally don't read young adult and those who do. So if you read the first one, you are probably ready for the second one. And this is Our Violent Ends, Violent Ends, book two by Chloe Gong. And I am ending today with an urban fantasy. This is Stone Magic, Counterfeit Psychic, book one by Thea Atkinson. And it is about, as the series title would imply, a counterfeit psychic. So she may be a crook, but that doesn't mean she's a murderer. Or does it? If you want to know more, you'll have to pick it up. It is Stone Magic, Counterfeit Psychic, book one by Thea Atkinson. And that is all I have for you this week. I hope that you are staying well and as safe as possible. We had some snow here in the Midwest this past weekend, so it does appear that winter is on the way. Mm -hmm. 
If you would like to leave us a rating or a review, you can do that on Apple Podcasts or any other platform that you use to access the show. Not only does it tell us what you think, but it also helps other people find us when they're looking for book-related podcasts. Um, It kind of advances us in the Google algorithm. So I will be back next Tuesday morning with an author interview and, of course, the guide to new releases. And some number of us will be back on Friday with more bookish greatness. Take care, everybody.